The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and you are listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. This morning I have two guests we're going to be talking to, conversations with professor and author Ian Stewart. He's a professor of mathematics at Warwick University in London, and his new book is The Mathematics of Life, where Professor Stewart proclaims that mathematics is the newest revolution in biology, changing the way scientists think about life. Uh, my next guest after Professor Stewart is Tim Harford. He's a columnist for the Financial Times and author of Adapt, Why Success Always Starts with Failure. But first, um, Professor Stewart is here to have a conversation about the role of mathematics in understanding the nature of life today and in the future, um, and to discuss his new book, The Mathematics of Life. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you, Catherine. Well, as I said, uh, Professor Stewart, I am a social worker, so I don't know too much about mathematics, and I'm not sure that my audience does either. But um, So let's talk about your new book, The Mathematics of Life. Uh, you, you know, when it comes to mathematics, I'm sort of like I'm like have a dead brain. So, um, but you proclaim that mathematics is the newest revolution in biology. What does that mean? Explain that to us as lay people. Okay, the the book is intended for lay people, by the way. So okay. don't be put off by the word mathematics in the title. Okay. <laughs> you don't need to know a lot of math to understand the the story. Um, there used to be a time when. Uh, the biological sciences were rather different from physical sciences. If you did a physics course, you got all sorts of mathematical formulas and equations. There was math all over the place. And you could get some respite from that by going off to do biology, which was about frogs and rats and, uh, and human beings and plants and animals. And there were probably very few mathematical equations or anything that looked remotely like math in school biology certainly, but in fact in biology even as done by research biologists, math was not something that you really had to take a lot of notice of. Um, statistics they had to do a bit to analyze their experiments, but that was kind of it. And that's all changing. Um, questions that are coming up in biology, now that the biologists have learned so much about the microscopic structure of living creatures and the DNA, the chemical molecules that provide the information for a living creature to grow and so forth, it's becoming clear that just having a list of all these ingredients and description of what a creature looks like or um, what it's made of doesn't give as much insight as was hoped into how the whole thing works. And the branch of science that is good for telling you how things work once you know what they are, what they're made of, is in fact mathematics. So math in various ways is um, getting involved in 
biological problems, it's to some extent you know, treading on their toes and getting into their territory. But this is a very fruitful collaboration and increasingly it's being seen as a collaboration. All right, so Professor Stewart, can you give us examples, you know, everyday examples? How does that impact not only on the scientific community but on us, you know, it's, it's just in terms of how we live our lives? Because I know you talk about uh, how mathematical models can explain and predict, which I thought was interesting, phenomena like the spread of disease and population explosions. Yeah, these are probably the parts of the book that are the, have the most direct impact on everybody's lives, particularly disease and the spread of disease. We all know what a disease is. We all know you can catch it from somebody else. Um, we all know that even if you take precautions to try and stop that, sometimes it's impossible to prevent it. And if it's a very serious disease or if it's uh, a disease of animals, which is of uh, economic importance to, to farmers, then... Um, you know, this affects everybody. Uh, now, and also, I think been... today as well, because we are, you know, we are, you know, the world is flat. We're all interconnected, and we see these, you know, the fear of these pandemics, these diseases that are going to be just carried around the world because we're all going around the world and traveling, and and so I mean, I, uh, so it it's really is a a problem, I guess, for all of us globally. It is, and actually that's a very perceptive remark because that fact that we're all traveling has forced the mathematicians to completely change the way they used to think about epidemics. Um, the mathematical models of epidemics have in fact been around for quite a long time now, since about the 1920s or 1930s, but they were based on the assumption that basically you catch the disease from your neighbors. It spreads locally, it spreads within a town, maybe somebody goes to the nearby town. So you can kind of predict where it's going to spread simply by where it starts and where it is spreading to. And you can estimate the rate at which it will spread if you know how infectious it is and how often people come into contact with each other. Now, long-range air travel has totally changed all of that for exactly the reasons you were saying. Uh, a recent example, there was a disease called SARS. It started in Hong Kong. It affected breathing. Um, and uh, it started in Hong Kong. And the next place it showed up in very soon afterwards was Toronto in Canada. And it went from Hong Kong to Toronto because one person got on a plane in Hong Kong, flew to Toronto, and 24 hours later, there was the beginnings of an outbreak in Canada. And the mathematics of spread of epidemics around the world has to take account of all these long-range connections. So the whole way we go about understanding the spread of diseases now is done using mathematical models of the network of interactions between the people. So but that network that. now has these long-range connections. That mathematically? Yeah. What you do is you set up some sort of mathematical description. For example, I could um, have uh, a collection of cities which are important with uh, flights between them, and those cities would then also connect to various towns in their own countries. And then I can write down mathematical description of how infection spreads from a town to a city or from a city to another city that is connected via an airline connection. Um, but the, the numbers and the things associated with the airline connection would be rather different from what they would be if you were just thinking about people walking along the street and coming into contact with somebody else. You sit in a plane for... 12 hours or maybe longer next to people who may actually have the disease. 
Uh, so the transmission of the disease on board the plane is different. Um, so by representing the number of people who are sick, the number of people who are infected but not yet showing symptoms, the length of time it takes the symptoms to show up, the incubation period that is, uh, but also the way people are connected to each other, you build that into a big mathematical model, turn it into equations, and then you put those on a computer and you solve the equations and see what the numbers turn up. And well, I'm thinking about estimate. the last uh, incident that we had. I think it was influenza. And I, it was last year or two years ago, and, and it was spreading and it was a pandemic, and you had all the newscasters and the people in the media on television and radio scaring the hell out of us because we didn't have any explanation. It was just, it's spreading, and it's spreading around the world, and, 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 it, and it's, it's getting worse. And, and so it really was, particularly with the influenza, it was like mm. inciting fear. And you're talking about there are specific ways to make predictions. I mean, would that be incorporated into the information that we as lay people get on the television or the radio, say regarding influenza, or you said SARS, or there, it, you know. Yeah, no, that was, I remember that, that was swine flu. It started flu, apparently yeah. in, 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 started in Mexico, and it appeared to be associated, it came from pigs, among other things. Um, yeah, in fact, we were traveling in South America at the time. We were in Ecuador going to Galapagos, and all, every, all of the officials at the uh, airports were wearing face masks because of it. Um, yeah, the problem with that was that when it first started, it took a while to actually get the basic information as to, as to what it was, how infectious it was, um, where it was coming from, and for a while it was all rather confused. So what the authorities did, and that's what caused the panic to some extent, was to say, okay, we have seen very nasty epidemics of influenza before. The Spanish flu epidemic killed 18 million people. Um, we'd better take a worst-case view of this and start taking precautions to say, if this thing is as bad as Spanish flu was, how fast will it spread, where will it spread, and what can we do to stop it? And behind the scenes, they were running these mathematical calculations to give them basic figures on what the worst-case scenario was. They were also running other calculations to suggest how likely the worst case would be, and actually it was not particularly likely. Now, what happened was the media picked up on the worst-case description because that is obviously the one you worry about most. It could be that bad. And they focused on that. And the, the, the idea that, in fact, this worst case was probably not very likely was not greatly emphasized. Now, I can understand that because if somebody says, basically, we're all going to die, and then they say, of course, it's not very likely, yeah. you still get a rather uncomfortable feeling. It was, it, how unlikely? You know, is it one in a hundred, one in a thousand, one in a million? How do I tell? The math can help with that. With that pandemic, it turned out that the big problem and what made it particularly nasty was that it affected young people more than it affected older people. Older people tended to have, if you were born after about 1944, you had immunity to it to some extent. Uh, I was just into that group, so I didn't have to worry so much. But if you were younger than that, um, then it could have quite a nasty effect. People died. And so the authorities were concerned that it really might turn out to be as bad as Spanish flu. Fortunately, in the end, it turned out that it wasn't. 
Um, but it was possible to respond fairly quickly to get vaccine produced in the event it looks like the response was maybe more than was necessary. But um, you know, the World Health Organization was trying to do the best it could with the limited information that was then available. If you're going to run the mathematical models and get accurate predictions, you need quite a lot of information. And in the early stages of an epidemic, especially if it's a new disease or a new strain of disease, a different kind of virus, say, related to the old ones but not the same, then it takes a while to get that information. You know, I think what happens is when you have the information presented in, in the way that it was by the media, after a while you become sort of immune to it and you don't listen to them anymore. And so when something, I think, you know, when there is perhaps something that is more that really does become dire we tend not to to respond to it because they always the, the way I, I that information was presented about the um the swine flu it got i, I know personally and and my colleagues and friends after a while we just ignored it because it was well, just so sensational um, and so i mean yeah. It, 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 it was early on. We were traveling around South America. People were clearly taking precautions. My wife is an ex-nurse, and we were looking at these people wearing face masks and saying, well, actually, that's not going to make a great deal of difference. Although you can understand why, say, customs officials who are coming across thousands and thousands of people every day ought to be more protected. But after a while, we just started saying, well, nothing actually seems to be happening. We, we look on the Internet, and yes, it is spreading, and some unfortunate people are catching it. But it's not thousands. It's, it's not even as many as it seemed to be when it started in Mexico. It was kind of seemed to be dying down. And so we took very much the same attitude. I think we all do. This is one of the problems with any kind of scientific prediction especially if the media tend to focus on the more extreme versions of it, um, it, it it's crying wolf, in effect. If, if it then doesn't happen, then next time it happens, people, or ne next time something similar occurs, people will say, oh, they predicted swine flu last time and nothing ever happened, and so forth. Um, and this is actually a very difficult issue. Uh, it's not just diseases. This is a problem. Um, predicting earthquakes is another uh, example of this. If you forecast an earthquake, everyone evacuates the city and then nothing happens. Well, next time you forecast an earthquake, they're not going to go. Um, but the predictions are not completely foolproof. They're better for diseases than they are for earthquakes. <laughs> well, you know, you're, you, you, you and your wife were traveling in South America. This is a little bit of a digression, but we were traveling at the same time to Buenos Aires also, and we were on a plane. It was a, uh, I think it was a United flight, and towards the end of the flight, before we landed, they handed us masks. But what she did, I think when we, when we were on the runway, and we had to wear a mask when we got off the plane before they, I don't know whether they x-rayed our chest to see whether or not we had the flu, or um, there was some kind of a machine there. But the point is that the stewardess or the flight attendants, they had the masks in hand, holding them and then passing them from passenger to passenger to give to the next passenger to put the mask on. So I said to my partner, boyfriend, you know, if we didn't have the swine flu before, we certainly would get it now because everybody's yeah. touched this mask. So it was the, it was the insanity of the whole thing. Um, that, you know, yeah, no, I think a lot, of that was, a lot of that was window dressing. They were, somebody was trying to convince the public that things were being done. Um, the masks... If, you're gonna, if they're going to be used at all, you probably should have been wearing them for the whole trip. 
Um, presumably the idea was that this might protect the people in the airport as you went through, but presumably the first thing you did once you got outside was take the mask off and throw it away anyway. Um, and unless they're the right kind of masks, they won't stop a virus in any case, and most of the masks being used were not actually the correct sort of masks. It, it, it was a public relations exercise, a lot of that, and I think it was actually rather silly. Yeah, well, that's that was my response, you know, after that trip. But now, talk to us also, okay, that's the disease, you know, talking about predicting the spread of disease, but you also talk, and I think this is another huge issue about population explosions, that these mathematical mm. models can predict population explosions. Okay, the mathematical models can predict quite accurately how populations will change, as long as there isn't some kind of social shift in the the culture. And um, not so long ago, the um, United Nations was predicting that the world population by the end of this century would peak at just over 9 billion, which is about 2.5 billion more than it is at the moment. And by then, it would have started to decline. They've now rerun the calculations based on what they now know about what's happening in various countries. Um, and it's not fantastically good news because the latest forecast is 10 billion by the end of the century and no sign of it um, starting to decline. It's probably going to be leveling off. So the figure is about 10% higher than it was thought to be a few years ago. And the difference is they're running the same mathematical models, but the model is only as good as the information you can put into it. And the patterns with which people are having families and also the movement of people around the globe has changed. Now, what the models can do is give you a kind of running estimate of the most likely future trends, and also they'll give you some estimate of the range of things that are possible. But for large-scale populations like the whole planet, um, the results are actually uh, the the the, the, the the band within which the prediction for 100 years from now um, will be placed is actually quite a wide band. It's sort of somewhere between 8 and 14 billion, um, which is not tremendously helpful. But if you want to forecast what it's going to be in about 10 years' time for various planning purposes, those figures are much more reliable. So in using these mathematical models to plan, to, to have some idea of what the population explosion is, what's the, you know, why do we need to do that? I mean, what do we need to, why should, why is it important for us to plan globally? If we don't plan, what's going to happen is that resources are going to run out, um, there'll be housing crises, there will be medical problems because there won't be enough trained doctors to deal with the size of the population, and so on. Some of those things are kind of self-correcting because as the population grows, more people become doctors, let's say. But, um, I mean, there's a lot of talk at the moment about oil starting to level off, possibly starting to run out, growing biofuels to make up the difference. When you grow biofuels, that means you're using agricultural land. If you are, then that could affect food production, and the population figures are vital for knowing how much food the world needs to produce. Um, People are beginning to, there's a conference going on at this university right now, actually in the math department, um, this is more mathematical biology, about um, biofuels 
coming from bacteria or algae instead of growing plants on agricultural land, this may be a slightly better solution. But if you want people to invest billions and billions of dollars in new technology on the grounds that in future we will need this because resources will run low, then you need a good forecast of what the demand for those resources will be. And that depends an awful lot on what the population is. So these mathematical models are, are really critical, I, I guess. I think they're critical. Yeah. Uh, they're becoming more so. What I say in, in the mathematics of life is I think a revolution in biology in the use of mathematics as an intrinsic part of what biologists do is beginning. There are signs it's underway, quite strong signs, and I go through a whole pile of different areas of biology and different kinds of maths that are turning up. Um, I also say I don't think the revolution is exactly with us yet. <laughs> this is the beginnings of it, and I could be wrong. We could get 50 years into the future, and there isn't a biologist on the planet who's using math anymore. I don't think that's the case, but this is my opinion. Well, but you what I do in the book is try and make out the case for that opinion. You just mentioned biologists or mathematicians or biomathematicians on our planet, but this kind of brings me into my last question um, about um, what, this is something that um, I want you to talk about, how scientists are using biomathematics or can use it to search for alien life forms on other planets, because I find that fascinating. So how do you do that? I wanted to end the book with something of probably very little practical use, certainly until we, if, if ever we run into an alien civilization. But um, it's a fascinating topic. It's a lot of fun, and it shows just how um, far you can push this kind of idea. Um, thinking about the possibility of life on other planets, we don't have the luxury of going out there and seeing what's there. We can do it to a limited extent within the solar system, and so far we've not actually found life anywhere else, at least not sufficiently convincingly. Um, but there might be some in the oceans on Europa, uh, which is a moon of Jupiter. It's got ocean under the ice. Um, there might be very strange life on Titan, which is a satellite of Saturn. Um, but there are two ways to think about alien life. One is to look at the biology of life on this planet and say, where else could that happen? And that's assuming aliens are going to be like us. It's good science, but, uh, and it could well lead to some interesting worlds to look for, but um, I think it's a bit unimaginative. The more interesting question is, how different from us could aliens be? Now, this is a kind of thought experiment. You can't do the real experiment. All you can do is apply scientific principles and see where they lead. And in effect, what you're doing is trying to simulate conditions on another planet, different kind of chemistry, different kind of atmosphere, different kind of weather, different kind of terrain, and certain kinds of possibilities for living creatures, and then say, now, could it work? Could, could some sort of very complex system like life get going in those conditions? And math is really one of the few tools we have for doing that, because you can actually set up the conditions, in, again, in a, in a computer or as equations on a piece of paper, and you can look at those and say, what do they tell us? Do, does this possibility look viable? Does it not make sense? What are the limits to this? And so on. So, Professor, can we do this, um, what are there, 120 billion, 140 billion other galaxies? Is that, is that 
It's huge. There are probably 200 billion galaxies. We're in so one if you're talking some. about 200 yeah. billion galaxies, there has to be, it would seem to me, even without any mathematical prediction, that there would be some other, like Star Wars, kind of life forms on... If you're ta- I mean, it's... it's I, I think that's... that's that's the sort of natural smart position. Um, there are 200 billion stars in each galaxy, roughly, and stars can have many planets. So um, I find the idea that we're the only place where life exists anywhere in all that vast expanse, um, that seems wildly unlikely. You can actually do some math on that. And in order for us to be the only one that exists, then... Um, some very strange coincidences have to happen because, you know, if we're the only one on 200 billion galaxies, each with 200 billion stars, each with about one or more planets, um, and we're only one, that's incredibly unlikely. And it means the probability of life arising and the number of planets there are have to balance out almost exactly to give you one. And even when they do, the chances are actually about two to one that it's either zero or more than one. It's only about a one in third chance, even if you get it working. Um, And I'm not saying this is decisive, but even some back-of-the-envelope math supports what you say. The universe is so big, there's such a variety of places and uh, other things that surely there must be life elsewhere. But it could be there's more life elsewhere if what we think of as unusual exotic life forms, ones that maybe live at much lower temperatures than we can handle or higher temperatures than we can handle or don't need water, don't need oxygen, use a different kind of chemistry. If those exist, then there's even more possibilities for alien life. And one of the techniques being used to try and tackle that problem increasingly is math. Well, I think it's an exciting future for this biomathematics, and and uh, I want to make sure that uh, listeners know about obviously your book. You can get the book, uh, what Amazon dot com, bookstores everywhere. Yeah, that's right. Yep, it's it's published by Basic Books, which is a, a major publisher, so you shouldn't have any problem finding it. And another question: Do you are you lecturing on this? I mean, I, 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 well, let's say in the United States, for instance, do you have lecture tours where you're t- discussing your book and and also this this whole concept of biomathematics? I don't have one at the moment. I was uh, I did give a lecture on it in Columbus, Ohio, last year. My uh, my main mathematical research collaborator is the director of the Mathematical Biosciences Institute in Columbus which is a a special NSF-funded institute which uh, does exactly this kind of math applied to biology. So I do have some contact with it. I I should add, I've I've retired, so I I don't give um, university lectures anymore, but I do do public lectures. And in the United Kingdom, I've given several lectures about the mathematics of life based on this book. And a website. Is there a website that we can go to? I have a website. The best way to find it is just to type Ian Stewart, my name, I-A-N-S-T-E-W-A-R-T, into Google or whatever search engine you prefer, and you should find me on the first page. And it will be fairly clear because the word mathematician will turn up somewhere. Terrific. That's, I, I, um, it doesn't really sound like you've, you've retired, maybe as a professor at the <laughs> university, but it sounds like you've... <laughs> Never. I'm I, I'm sitting in my office at the university as we speak. In fact, oh, okay. And I go in about four days a week. No, I've not retired except I, do, I, I, I 
stopped doing some of the routine daily work. I'm still doing research. I'm still writing my books, still doing radio, television, a few things like that. But you're still doing the fun stuff. I'm doing the fun stuff. That's yeah. Right. Well, it was great talking to you today. Really very, very nice conversation. And, um, uh, you know, I'll continue to go to your website. And if you come to the United States, I definitely would like to hear you if you are lecturing. And uh, uh, for the listeners one more time, um, Professor Stewart's book is The Mathematics of Life. Thanks so much. Thank you, Catherine. We're going to take a short break right now. I am Catherine Fox, your social worker with a microphone, and you are listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. Drawing on resources from wellness communities throughout America and abroad, the show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Michelle Core Six Degrees is your connected consciousness. Six Degrees is what comes around, goes around radio. Committed to delivering a fresh perspective on thought-provoking, investigative information that can change your life. Six Degrees connects you to the social and emotional scene and is your trusted advisor from finance to romance, mainstream to metaphysical. It's a positive, upbeat look at life, love, and the pursuit of passion. Get connected Saturdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is my next guest, Tim Harford. He's a columnist for the Financial Times and the author of Adapt, Why Success Always Starts with Failure. Well, I know here in America, failure is not a word anybody wants to hear, and why success always starts with failure, a fascinating concept. Tim, you say that failure is inevitable in your book, and it happens all the time. It has to happen all the time in our complex economy, but that failure can produce great things. So this is what we want to talk about today. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Thanks very much. Good to be on the show. So, failure is an option on the way to success. None yeah, of it well, it's, it's pretty unavoidable. That's, that, that's the thing. I mean, you, you, you said a second ago, uh, Failure uh, is ubiquitous, failure is unavoidable, and so uh, it's not that I want to suggest that failure is a a nice thing, uh, or that failure even necessarily produces good results, because it can produce good results, but it, of course, can produce a lot of misery. It's just that we we can't avoid it. We're going to run into it. Uh, If we're trying to solve any complex problem, whether it's a policy problem, a business problem, even many problems in our personal lives, 
Uh, and so we're going to have to work out ways to deal with it constructively and learn from it and use it. Why do you think, let's maybe go back a little bit, why do you think that, mo- that, that people, that many of us or even most of us think of failure, we, we think of failure as we made an error, we made a mistake, now we have to cover up for it. I mean, we're sort of kind of trained with that kind of a mentality, I think, from the very beginning. We, don't, we aren't told necessarily, well, if you, if you fail then this is an opportunity to be successful. It's more like, well, you... Yeah, I mean, look, there are so many things we can talk about that line. Um, so, well, why don't we start with um, this great work by Carol Dweck, who's a psychologist. Who I, I think her work is now becoming deservedly well-known. Um, she points out, and she's done experiments to, to back this up, that in school... Uh, and, of course, with our parents as well, we're often um, praised for getting things right. Now, there's nothing wrong with praise. Um, but if you're praised for being smart, uh, that intimately links your success with your conception of who you are. I got, the, I got the answer right. I achieved success because I am a smart person. I am a successful person. I'm that kind of person. So, yeah, yeah this, this idea that, that Carol has... Um, which he tested with experiments that if we're, if we're always praised for our successes, we, we associate our cleverness, uh, our own sort of personality traits as being the reason for our success. And then, of course, the moment we fail, we also blame ourselves. Well, I failed, I, I made a mistake, and that means I'm a bad person, I'm a stupid person, I'm a dumb person. And so Dweck says that at school, it's far better for us to be praised for our efforts She's not saying don't praise people, but praise them for, the, for their efforts. You, know, you succeeded because you worked hard. And then if you fail, you say to yourself, well, maybe I just need to try again. Maybe I need to work harder. Maybe I need to study harder. So what Dweck's research suggests is that it is possible to, to teach people to have a more constructive relationship with, with errors. But what about that, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about one of the things that they do, particularly here in the United States, they start praising young children just for their effort in terms of what they do, and they, they end up, and I don't know if this is what you're talking about, so they get a prize for, even if they, you know, really don't do well, there's 10th prize, and, you know, prize for coming in 10 or 12 or 13th in whatever sport you're in, or, uh, is that a good thing to do? I mean, so they're praising them for their efforts, but they're really not succeeding at what they do, or they're not not competitors in what they do, and that doesn't seem to me to be a good thing either. No, I, I agree. I don't, I don't think that is particularly. I mean, what you're describing is not praising people for their efforts, but just praising people, irrespective <laughs> of whether <laughs> they deserve they any do. praise. Okay. So, you know, I, I'm not sure that's the, that's the healthiest way forward. I mean, it, it, we, we, we experience this as adults as well. Um, I think in an effort to try to be constructive and encouraging, which is, of course, what we want to do, um, you think about how, uh, how a lot of interactions go um, in adult life, say in, in an office environment, in a work environment. You get what I call the praise sandwich, where someone is trying to deliver some criticism, but they know the criticism uh, is unpleasant, and so they sandwich it between these delicious slices of praise. So you get all this stuff where people say, well, you're, you're, this project that you've done, it's really great, it's excellent work, and they, they go on for ages about how great it is, and then they say, well, maybe you need to change this, and then they're back to the praise. And we do something uh, which the, the psychologist, uh, so the behavioral economist, it's kind of psychology, the behavioral economist Richard Thala calls hedonic editing, which is a jargony sort of word for mashing up all that praise together with a little bit of criticism and saying, well, basically, 
it's fine. I don't need to change anything. And I think there are much more helpful ways to give feedback. So if you look at uh, Pixar, they make these great movies. They've got a very collegiate environment there, but it's all about trying to improve what they've got and make it better. And so they have what they call plussing. And plussing is simply when you make a, a criticism, just be specific about what needs to improve. Don't waste time saying it's good or it's not good. Who cares whether it's good or not? Or not? Well, we've been really discussing about how we get to this point of feeling that we, if we fail at something and we make an error, we make a mistake, that we have uh, failed and it's not a good thing and it can't, we can't become successful. So uh, we're sort of kind of explaining this behavior, the kind of praise that we get from the beginning. Absolutely, yeah. The, yeah. It's a cliche, isn't it, almost, the idea that we should learn from our mistakes. But uh, I think the reason it's a cliche, the reason we keep saying learn from your mistakes, try, try again, is because this is advice that we find incredibly difficult to take. And that's just on the personal level. Of course, the same thing is true of institutions. And it's, it's often uh, more so with institutions because in a big hierarchy, whether we're talking about... Um, you know, a, a government or a, a big company or, or even an army. I mean, it could be any, any hierarchical institution at all. People know they may see a problem going on at the bottom of the institution. They may see something going on on the shop floor, the front line. They know it's not really good for their careers to pass the bad news further up. And so hierarchies are very, very good at filtering out uh, bad news and promoting people who always say yes to the boss. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's, that's a real problem. It's a real problem, and it's not a problem we've really figured out exactly how to deal with. So, in other words, it's kind of a cover-up. Is that what we do? Is that what companies do? We, we, we do. I mean, and there, there are various ways to do it. Sometimes it comes from the top. Uh, there's no desire for feedback. I mean, in the book, I, I discuss the tragic experience of the U.S. Army in Iraq where Donald Rumsfeld, the Secretary of State for Defense, refused to let his senior generals even use the word to describe the problems they were facing. They were facing an insurgency. And he, he didn't want them to use the word insurgency. So it's, it's really Orwellian. Um, at other times, it's about whistleblowers. So I look at the experience of big industrial accidents, like the Deepwater Horizon disaster, but also the financial crisis. And what I find is those incidents have a surprising amount in common. They're very complex systems. They're fragile. They're vulnerable to small failures. But in both cases, there were um, employees who could see that there were problems and who were trying to speak out about the problems despite the risks to their careers and who for various reasons were ignored or sidelined or, you know, I, I mean, sometimes, sometimes they were, the repression was extreme, but a lot of times it was simply, you know, people would say, well, that's very interesting and we'll take it into account. And then for some reason or another, nothing ever seemed to get done. The, the procedures didn't get any safer. And that's very common. So are you saying, Tim, that if we would just define really what's happening instead of trying to cover up for our mistakes or using euphemisms for what we're doing or not doing that are not successful, that we just, we just um, accept what our mistakes are, our errors, define them, and then go, we can learn from them and then go from there and we can become then maybe more successful. I mean, but we have to at least be able to we have to admit that we've made a mistake, don't we? Uh, we no, we do, absolutely. I, I, what I found fascinating, um, visiting uh, both coasts uh, of the U.S. on book tour, um, 
was the contrast between New York and, say, San Francisco. I spoke at Google, and I said, hey, you know, we need to, we need to basically fail, fix our failures really fast, learn, uh, and go on to success. And at Google, they were, they were, yeah, sure, of course. Yeah, fail faster, double your failure rate. That's how you innovate. Uh, here at Google, we expect 80% of our products to fail. For them, it just seemed totally natural, the message of the book. Whereas in New York, Wall Street, what's the phrase? Too big to <laughs> fail. Too big to fail. And you, you compare the Silicon Valley versus Wall Street, and you ask, well, which of these two parts of the U.S. economy has contributed more to people's happiness, contributed more to economic prosperity? It's been the guys who are really comfortable with failure. So the Wall Street guys have to learn from the Silicon guys. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's partly cultural. Uh, it's partly about allowing people further down to speak up. It's partly the structure of the industries. I mean, the way that Wall Street is so interconnected, to some extent that can't be altered. And, and, and a bank is always going to be more fragile than a, um, than a small Silicon Valley startup. But, we, but don't we you can... also think, Tim, that it has to do with the type of people who go into banking and then the type of people who are going to go to Silicon Valley, the kind of innovative, more entrepreneurial kind of mentality, who expect to, to make mistakes and to be challenged by them, whereas bankers have a very different kind of way of viewing the world? Yeah, we can, we can always sell the mistake to somebody else before anybody notices. No, I, I, I think that's true. I mean, let me tell you a, a a contrast that I found really revealing. I went to visit a nuclear power plant in um, the southwest of England to explore how uh, the nuclear industry tries to, tries to deal with safety issues because I felt actually this is a really powerful analogy for banking. And I was told, hey, here in the... Clearly nothing, you know, you wouldn't say everything's okay in nuclear power, but they've thought a lot about this. And one of the things they said is everybody here is safety conscious. Everybody here is trained in nuclear safety. And everybody here has a responsibility to, to speak up if they see a risk. And I said to myself, yeah, well, you know, that kind of thing's easy to say. And then I was just, I put on overalls and steel-capped uh, boots to go and have a look at the nuclear reactor. And I was in a meeting room with the head of safety of this installation, so as a senior guy. And suddenly in walks uh, a lady pushing a trolley with coffee and sandwiches. It's our lunch. And she stops and she points polite but she was very firm she said you've left your running shoes in the corridor that is a tripping hazard please remove them and she's in the room this is just the lady with the sandwiches telling off the head of safety at this installation and i thought to myself i just can't imagine that kind of interaction on a wall street trading floor i cannot imagine a junior analyst or a junior member of staff speaking up and saying you know, we've got the wrong risk management. Uh, you, people are taking people are taking the wrong risks. People are acting foolishly. You just can't imagine that sort of interaction taking place on Wall Street. I, I you know, I I agree with you. I think it's the culture of the community, and 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 and, and that's a perfect example of it. Um, but you know, I I think it's not. It's easy to beat up on Wall Street, and to some extent, they deserve it, but. I think we all need to get a little bit more comfortable with, with learning from our mistakes, learning from our failures. I mean, let's think about our political culture. We're very, very quick to jump on a politician who makes a U-turn. We like our politicians to deliver 
the appearance of certainty, even though they can't be certain. The world's a very uncertain place. We vote for politicians who say, yeah, I'm the decider. I always get things right. We don't vote for politicians who say, well, it's complex. I have some ideas for improving the education system. I've got, I've got 10 ideas. We're going to run pilots. We'll see which of these ideas work. The ones that work, we're going to roll out. We'll provide the funding. We'll recommend that this is rolled out across the nation. The stuff that doesn't work, well, we learned an important lesson and we won't do it again. People don't respect that in politicians. That just sounds weak. But in fact, that's an, an admission that we don't really know what works and we need to experiment to find out. So how do we get the people the population, to be able to accept that kind of a politician. Because as you're describing it, it's like, well, that would be, we'd have a lot more successes, you're right, if, if politicians were able to do that instead of making up stories and cover up and, and, try, and marketing themselves and marketing their projects, but really being, as, as you described, very realistic about what they can and cannot do. How do we get the people to be able to vote for those kinds of politicians? There, there are a couple of things. So one, I think it's partly about responsible journalism. And, and one of the things I do here in the UK is I run a radio show where we, we just pick apart the, journal, the journalistic releases and the politician statements of the week and say, where's the evidence for that? Do the numbers stack up? Uh, we just try and be, we're not political. We just say, look, you know, have you taken the data seriously? Have you taken the numbers seriously? And we try and encourage ordinary people to realize actually they can critically evaluate the evidence that's put in front of them. It's not so hard. You just need a bit of common sense and just need to stop and think for a moment. That's one thing. I think a second thing, politicians themselves could, I think, sell this idea of uh, experimentation more if they were willing to be upfront about it. If they said, we don't know, but we're going to find out and explain how it was going to happen in advance, I think they could make that case. But most politicians tend to, tend to hide it. And the third thing, I think we've just got a lot to learn from the medical profession. Clearly, the medical profession isn't perfect, but all doctors are taught by clinicians who are themselves researchers. They produce their own evidence. The evidence that they produce is informed by their clinical experience. There's a real sort of tight loop between um, edu the education of doctors, the training of doctors, and the gathering together of evidence. And when you think about other professionals, whether we're talking about education professionals or criminal rehabilitation professionals, or, or actually you know, most professions, there's just not that same tight link. And I think um, that would just, we would just have a lot more careful evidence-based policy from education to uh, healthcare delivery to uh, crime and punishment, you know, ac across the spectrum, if we learned a little bit more from the way doctors have learned to do things. Uh, all right, so there is, well, there is, what you're saying is there are professionals, there are groups that we can look at, that politicians can look to to, to, to emulate in terms of the way they, yeah. they handle themselves. We only have a few more minutes left, so let's, uh, how do we want to end this? Because, uh, first of all, I want listeners to know they can go to, you have a website, well, you can buy the book, bookstores everywhere online, obviously, but uh, a website that we can go to? Sure. So I'm on Twitter as Tim Harford. That's Harford without a T. I'm, I'm not a town in Connecticut. Um, Tim Harford on Twitter. And the website is timharford.com. And there's a, a feed of all of my columns, all of my articles. And, and, of course, you can find out more about the books there as well. And so when is your radio show? Is that an Internet show? Can we listen to that? You can. It's, it's podcast. So we're off air at the moment. We're back on in August. Um, but I do recommend it. There's a link on my website. And it's called More or Less. It's a BBC show. 
and uh, yeah, you can you can download it and listen to it uh, online. Uh, and I invite you to do so. You know, we 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 have a lot of fun. We we do numbers, but we try and make we try and make the numbers enjoyable as well, not too intimidating. Yeah, we don't want to be intimidated. <laughs> of course, yeah. well, that, that's not the word. That's not the aim. Absolutely that's not, not the, the aim. aim. Yeah, that's great. Well, it's been great talking to you this morning, and uh, I'll mention the book again. Uh, Adapt. Why success always starts with failure. Remember that. Tim Harford, columnist for the Financial Times. Great having you on the show this morning. Thank you, Catherine. Lovely to talk to you. Yeah. Have a good day. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. I hope you had a great morning this morning. Have a good week, and uh, we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.